I am Marlon Jones, the Career Skills Architect, and this is View from the Big Chair Podcast, Examining the Cost to Be the Boss. The purpose of this podcast is to share information with students in sports administration programs and with young professionals and those who are underemployed in sports administration. We talk with guests who sit in the big chair, those persons who are directors of athletics, who are head coaches, commissioners, or directors of different areas within athletic administration. We learn from their journey, and we also learn what skill sets they look for when they are hiring for positions so that you know how to prepare so that you can get to your own big chair. Today we are joined by Derek Wittenberg, a former basketball student athlete, coach for over 25 years, NBA scout, who's a member of several halls of fame and an Emmy Award winner. He currently serves his alma mater, North Carolina State University, as Associate Director of Athletics, Community Relations, Student Support, and Ambassador. Coach, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you. Coach, tell our audience, when and how did you fall in love with basketball? It's ironic that you asked me this. We're getting ready to celebrate 40 years of our championship. And I'm writing a book, and it, it states back to when I was born in 1960. And my parents uh, migrated from the south to the north. And uh, we arrived in Washington, D.C. And then I we moved to Prince George's County out in Maryland, where I joined the Boys and Girls Club and started to play three sports, uh, baseball, football, and basketball. And that's when I started to really fall in love with organized sports and and became pretty good at all three. And uh, it's just because of the organization and the wonderful coaches that, uh, that coached me in those early years, starting when I was eight years old. So uh, that was my, that's when I started to fall in love with sports. You're a member of the DeMatha Catholic Hall of Fame. How did your high school coach impact your life? Morgan Wooten at the time in DeMatha High School was was the prominent high school in the area and one of the best schools in the country. And during that time in the mid-70s, it wasn't common for kids, African-American kids, to afford and go to a school like DeMatha. I mean, because the first, you had to be a top athlete, the second, a really good student. And then you had to afford to go to DeMatha because 300 bucks back then in the, in the mid-70s was a lot of money. A lot of and money. A lot of, and a lot of families couldn't afford that, especially in my case with three other kids and a younger brother and a sister and my parents, that was a big decision to spend $250, $300 on their oldest kid to, to go to a Catholic school. There's a lot of sacrifices in there. So um, going to that school really not just enhanced my basketball career, but uh, the things we learned and what 
the the whole structure of a Catholic private high school taught us in terms of discipline and character and all the the intangibles and intangible things that you need to be successful. We learned at the math high school. And how did that help you when you got to NC State? Uh, it, it, it prepared me. And uh, basically uh, learning all those things like, uh, uh, you know, allocating your time and work ethic and being a part of a team. And, uh, you know, in high school, although I was one of the top uh, players, I didn't start till I was a senior year. So I, I understood what it was like to play with a lot of good players and coming off the bench. Academically, I was well prepared in terms of the way the math prepares you. They were really tough on you academically. And thirdly, character, uh, making good decisions, uh, hanging around the right people, hanging around successful people. They're basically staying out of trouble. And uh, I took those things to NC State already knowing all those qualities. But on the sports side, I was part of the first national championship for DeMath in 1978 when we went 28 and 0. So I was accustomed, I was accustomed to winning. I understood what it took to win. And I also understood that your work ethic, you have to work for it. You have to earn it. And a lot of kids don't understand that today. It's not given to you. Nobody handed me a cell phone. Nobody handed me a pocket full of money. Nobody handed me a car. Everything that you, you want to, to achieve in life, you have to earn it. Now, it's 1983, and it's tournament time. You were talking about wins. There weren't a lot of wins that year before the tournament. What is it that made your team believe that they could win a national championship? Well, first of all, Coach Valvano, when he took over uh, in 1980, we were actually recruited by Norm Sloan, and then Norm Sloan left and went to Florida. And then Jim Valvano came in on in 1980 and took over the team. And from day one, he talked about winning the national championship. That was his passion. That was his vision. That was his dream. And that's the reason why he wanted to become the coach at NC State. So we always talked about it. And you fast forwarded my freshman year. Uh, we had a pretty good year. Went 20 and eight, lost in the first round. Uh, Valvano's first year, we didn't make the tournament. Second year. Uh, we went 22 and 12 and lost to uh, Gerald um, uh, Dominic Wilkins' brother, Gerald mm-hmm. Wilkins, in the in the first round in Indianapolis. So it was a lot of pressure on us in my my final year to win it because North Carolina had won the national championship in 1982. I remember, and, you know, the, and the and the rivalry between NC State and North Carolina, as you know, yes, Marlon, is is a serious <laughs> serious uh, rivalry. And so the pressure was on us. And uh, we started off that year actually pretty well. We was ranked nationally in eight and two and playing against uh, the powerful Ralph Sampson and on national TV and actually uh, had a, uh, a significant lead until I hurt my foot in, in that second half. Yes, yes. Now you went from being a teammate of some of those guys to being their coach when you became assistant coach at NC State. What did you find you had to do to make that transition smooth? Because we have a lot of people who are young and they get that grad assistant position with their former teammates. How do you make them see you in that different role? 
Well, it, it was it was really interesting timing in which everything happened for me because we just won the national championship. I'm high on the I'm high on the hog, and everybody's loving you, and you think that the, the world is at your feet. And then I go to the Phoenix Suns, and I get cut. And then now, what do you do? And so, uh, to me, I did something that is unusual. Instead of pursuing my athletic career, I came back to school to finish first. And when I came back to school, I had an opportunity for them to see me in a different light. Obviously, I had the notoriety. Obviously, I had the respect uh, because of what I did as, as an athlete there. So, me coming back, being around the campus and being back in North Carolina, I think uh, everybody got to see me in a different light. And I think that helped a lot. And uh, by starting off as the graduate assistant, really humbled me because I went from a national champ, all of a sudden I'm driving to Fuquay to do a part-time job in a textile uh, company to uh, offset my finances. So I went from this guy was on top of the world. Now I was back on the grind. I was going to school. I was doing two jobs. I was going to practice. I was studying. And so really, it was a really good experience for me and a humbling experience because it, it showed you that now you're back in the re real world. When you walk across the, when I did that textile company, when I, somebody walked across my desk, they didn't cheer for me, right? They wanted me <laughs> to do my job. <laughs> Get this <laughs> done about, today. To talk about, yeah, yeah, the cheering stops, right? The cheering stops and the, and the, and the ball is not bouncing. So you, you have to be successful doing something else. And I learned a lot of valuable lessons during that time. And what skill sets did you have to develop as an assistant coach before you could sit in that head coach seat? Well, I think sports itself, you developed a lot of uh, good character traits. For one, perseverance. I mean, we always talk about you know, nothing's easy, nothing's going to be handed to you. And just because you work hard doesn't automatically be you, you're going to be successful. One thing is for sure, if you don't work hard, you're going to fail. But so working hard gives you an opportunity to be successful. Number two, you, you understand what it's like to, to be a part of a team and the sacrifice. And a lot of people who have not been a part of sports don't understand that concept. It's a team concept. You have to uh, you learn how to play within a team and not always think about yourself. And, uh, and one, and the other thing is to set goals and to, to achieve at a higher level. And I think that taking all those, those traits and things and building relationships and the ability to communicate with people of all walks of life. You got to remember we won the national championship. We were going to hospitals and uh, going to the white house and going to corporations. So we were exposed to a, a, a just a plethora of different people in all sectors of life. And so those experiences really help prepare you in anything that you decide to go. I just decided to go into coaching. But, I mean, if I wanted to, I, I, start, I thought about going to IBM and worked for IBM. I started going to corporate world. So all those things that we learned in sports and through that experience in the 83 championship really gave me a, a huge advantage in uh, attacking my next career. And what was the hardest part of being a head coach at a college campus? 
Well, the hardest part, I, I thought, I enjoyed the recruiting. Uh, I enjoyed the the academic parts because when I was coaching and when I recruited kids when they was in high school, I went to all the graduations. I just oh, I wow. used to enjoy that because I was a first-generation graduate myself, so education was very important to me. And, and so I enjoyed the academic part. I enjoyed the relationship part. To me, the hardest part is to get the kids to understand that we have to do it together. Gotcha. And, and I think that you, that took time, not that my kids didn't, but I think that took time because what's hard about that is the outside influences. I think the kids want to do the right thing, but they got their parents, they have the AAU coaches, they have their trainers. Everybody's trying to influence them to do what's best for them but and try to take them away from the team concept. I think those outside influences is the one thing as a coach that I dreaded the most because it's hard to control all those entities, you know, 24 hours a day. Correct. One of the things I noticed with just fundamentals, once people started desiring to be on the ESPN highlight reel, they seems like their fundamentals went out the window. They were, they wouldn't go for a layup. They were going to try to make the 30 footer so they could be on plays of the week. Well, that started in AAU as well. Uh, the whole AAU circuit uh, really was uh, a good on a lot of fronts and also challenging on, on a lot of fronts. And the reason why these kids would play AAU and winning wasn't important because they can play a game, lose a game, win a game, and they just keep playing. There's just no value on winning. Number two, you, you get to emulate and see all people doing the wrong things. Right? Mm. Like uh, they, they didn't, fundamentals wasn't important. It was important about me scoring and, and don't share what, what my teammates. And then when they watch the NBA, they watch the NBA and they watch all the great players shoot a lot of threes. So they think that's the way they have to play. They shoot a lot of threes. So the influence of a coach and making them understand to play the right way is so key because of, again, all the outside influence. You can't control social media. You can't control what they watch. You can't control what the people around you. I used to always tell them what you hang around is what you come, what you put in these uh, two between your two ears is vitally important. And so you want to, you want to get the positive stuff around them. So you have to stay positive and you have to keep the people around them as positive as you can in, in this whole process of being a coach. Now you spent some time as a scout uh, working with the Utah jazz share for our listeners, what the role of a scout is and what skill sets are needed to be successful. Well, before I came a, a, a scout, uh, I had been coaching for 26 years and had one of the best years at Fordham University, and I got fired. And um, a lot of people uh, in, in their journey of working, a lot of them don't get fired. They either change jobs or leave jobs, whatever. But you never imagine yourself getting fired. So I got fired at Fordham University. It's probably one of the best things that ever happened to me. It didn't look like it at the time. But but when they fired me, I had to find out what am I going to do next? Did I want to continue in coaching? I had been basketball more than half of my life. 
and what other interests do I have? And so I decided to go work for ESPN and, and, and had a great time in commentating. But along with the commentating in 2013, I had an opportunity to scout because I was commentating games. I was living on the East Coast in New York. Uh, so um, I, had a, I had an offer from Utah Jazz, and uh, they, they wanted me to scout the East Coast. So I could evaluate players. I'm used to recruiting. I had a lot of contacts. And more importantly, what scouts do, they want you to find out intel about the individual. Mm. You're getting ready to draft a young man that you're going to spend millions of dollars uh, of resources for this kid to represent your, your team in so many different ways. So you better know what kind of person you're getting. And so what I was really good at is intel, finding out who their girlfriend was. Did this kid was a partier? Did he smoke weed? Did he, um, you, you know, how good a student he was? What was his background? Kind of parents. So I think that intel uh, for for some of the athletes and for the NBA prospects, I think, was vital to my role with the Utah Jazz. So you're almost like a private investigator. Partly, well, yeah, that you're that too when you're uh, recruiting in college. I mean, you have to find out the same information. What kind of kid is he? What kind of student? Uh, can he do the schoolwork at your university? Uh, is he a team player? Is he coachable? Is he a young man or young lady uh, have the ability to, uh, to, to learn and get better? All those qualities were the same as a recruiter. So I just took that same skill as a scout. And uh, what they understood, Walt Perry, who was the, one of the lead scouts for Utah Jazz at the time, and now a general manager with the Knicks, he, i known him for a long time. We used to be on the road together recruiting, and uh, he, he understood my talent and what I could bring to the table. And by the way, it would save time because a lot of teams don't have scouts all over the country. So Utah was in the West, and they need somebody to really to help them evaluate players on the East Coast. Got it. Now, when you went to ESPN as an analyst, a lot of people want to be in broadcasting. What preparation does ESPN provide, or do they expect you to already have that? They don't provide anything. They give you a contract. They tell you how many games, how many studio appearances, and they say, okay, we'll see you. We'll see you next date. My first game, I did a Wake Forest game. The producers that were producing the game came up to me the day of the game before practice. said, okay, Derek, what are we going to talk about? And I was like, <laughs> in shock. I was like, what do you mean? I, I'm new too. Where's my script? You know, where, where's my script? But I learned very quickly that I was probably, you know, uh, one of the producers because I had to tell them about who's the best players, uh, what kind of system they're running background on the coaches, background on the top players. Absolutely one of the uh, players that I first commentated was my godson, Travis McKay, who played for Wake Forest. And so I had to provide the pr – most of those uh, those companies that produce a game probably came from a tennis match or somewhere else, and they were just – they got a contract to produce the game. And that's what they do. They set up the cameras. They run all the social media and everything. And the, and the, the hired guns, the – uh, announcers in the color and the play-by-play, we're here to support and, and tell people why what's happening on that court. And uh, and I 
really learned on the fly. And that's that's typical of uh, of these indus- industries in terms of learning how to commentate. They, and then you have to learn how to help yourself and go go get help as like I, my friend, my late, late John Saunders, I used to mm. ask him a lot of questions and the late Stuart Scott. Yes, I used Tar to Heel. Ask those, yeah, a Tar Heel. And uh, so I used to ask a lot of the other commentators you know, getting information and then I had to study and learn. And that's a, a you on the job learning when you're a commentator at ESPN. So what is the difference in the role of the color commentator as opposed to the announcer well the play-by-play is telling you actually what's going on uh uh, just every play just describing the players uh the team your job as an analyst is to tell them why to explain them why that play happened and and my insight as a coach and a player i wanted to i was telling them why through my experience, why, you know, this, uh, when he went to the basket, there was no help side and therefore no defense. And it was just an easy layup. I'm explaining to you why it happened. You, most people can see it happening, but I, I can tell you why I can anticipate who, why they didn't do the right defense or they made an excellent play call and executed very well and, and, and scored the ball or they made a great defensive play. And then I could talk about time to score in situations. When the game is you you up one point, what do you do in this situation? What what did you do in '83 when you were when you were uh, uh, down two? You foul one of the players and put them on the line and and put the pressure on and make them shoot free throws. So I can give some perspective from a from a coaching perspective and a player and talk about situations that I that I've been involved in to really help the viewer understand what's going on out there. So for those who aspire to work in broadcasting, they really have to first learn the fundamentals of the game before they can be successful. Well, first of all, they have more access to information. Now they can go to camps. Now they can go and learn more, not just about the game, but actual the art of commentator. They can reach out to people who are commentators and, and and really get some good information. So there's no excuses now. I think you can learn from not just ESPN, NBC, CBS. There's a lot of good commentators out there, a lot of information out there that they can use to, to get into business, and then they just got to work at it. And uh, if they do, and, and, and it's something they can start early. I mean, you have opportunities now, ESPN and CBS, and TNT, you can work in the summer. So they have opportunities to work with some of these companies and shadow some folks and see how this really works. And uh, and I think this it's it's really fun initially. For me, it didn't it wasn't always fun because it's 45 minutes of talking basketball. And, you know, I can do that on the couch. You know, and uh, and uh, I can do that with my friends. So it, it was stimulating in the beginning. But you got to re- remember, I'm used to coaching and playing at the highest level. And and sometimes when you commentate a game, you're not commentating the game at the highest level. You may be commentating uh, a Division One game that don't have the same talent as the ACC uh, mm. broadcast. So for me, it was initially very stimulating. 
but uh, as it went on, you know, it didn't give me the kind of, you know, passion and the things I was looking for to really stimulate me to, to, to stay in uh, commentating. And I think a lot of people overlook shadowing and informational interviews. Those are things we had to do because we didn't have access through social media. But I think they're still very beneficial. Absolutely. I mean, you can go on YouTube and watch games. You can study games right now. I remember uh, here was an interesting uh, uh, thought. So I listened to Dick Vitale. And he used the word great 19 times in the first half. I went, <laughs> said great. I said, was it that many great plays? So everybody thinks the, the, the analogy of great, every play is not a great play. It sounds good on TV, right? Oh, that was great. What a great pass. Every pass is not great. But it, it sensationalized the game, right? You feel like, wow, okay. Fans don't know any better. It was a great play. Well, every play is not great. And I I learned that that Dick Vitale could say great and it'd be okay. But I couldn't say great. The producers would say, you saying great too much. Well, I said, Dick Vitale said it 19 times in one game. He said it 47 <laughs> times. And y'all didn't say anything about him. <laughs> you know, so you have to learn your niche. You have to be yourself. And that's what's really, really important, being yourself. And the one thing I didn't, uh, I, I, I loved about the studio, that I can get a chance to tell stories. They had great stories and experiences. But they would also like for your opinion about something and something that uh, opinions don't always trump the truth. Ah. So I, I struggled with that sometimes that they wanted me to be opinionated about a coach or something like that. But I wanted to tell the truth. Ah. <laughs> and, so, and so to me, that was a class for me because uh, some of the experiences that I had with coaches and what they do, and I had a lot of friends in coaching and, and I, and I competed against them. I coached against them. I recruited against them. So I had an in-depth, you know, experience about how to deal with these coaches. I just didn't want to say, I feel like Mike Shashesky didn't make the right call at that time. Well, I said, well, that's that's my opinion. Mm. But the reason why I know why he made that call, uh-huh. because he he he, he feels as though that 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 was the right person to take that shot, and and Grant Hill wasn't the right person to take that shot. He chose somebody else. So I understood why a coach made a move before they made a move. Because Forget you did about it my yourself. Opinion of that. Right, you did it yourself for so long. Absolutely. Now, in addition to being an analyst for ESPN, Derek produced two 30 for 30s, Survive and Advance, about the 1983 team, for which he won an Emmy, and The Gospel According to Mac, about Colorado's football coach, Bill McCarthy. How did you transition to becoming an executive producer? Well, I'm sitting on the couch, a beautiful thing about being fired, you got a lot of time to, to watch a lot of things. So I'm watching the Fab Five story, and I call up my friend Jonathan Hawk, and I said, you know what? The 83 story needs to be told. And uh, we we made the treatment up and talked about it, presented to ESPN, and then next year, you know, uh, a few months later, we, we are working on uh, Surviving Advance. 
It's just as simple as that. I mean, anybody could have produced a documentary. It's a matter of pursuing your dreams and, and persevering. Listen, ESPN turned me down twice. Wow. Uh, TNT turned me down. CBS turned me down. Uh, nobody, nobody really was interested at the time. And then thanks to George Bodenheimer and the team at uh, ESPN, uh, they said, you know what? This needs to be done. And, and, and we did it. And by the way, during that period, I was on the, the, the Jimmy B foundation board at the time. So I was working the board with a lot of ESPN folks and, uh, the timing was right. And, uh, it was the 10 year anniversary of the 83 team in 2003. And then 2000, uh, uh, 2013 was the 20th anniversary, uh, 30th anniversary 30. and, uh, mm-hmm. 30th anniversary. And we launched it in 2013 and the rest, we had no idea how good it was going to be. We were just telling the story. How long did it take to actually get all of that footage completed? Uh, from, from the beginning to the end, probably about, t- uh, 12, 13 months uh, when we finally got going, probably after we got everything together, probably seven, eight months from there, but all in all for the whole start of the project, probably about 13 months it took for us. I started in 2011 uh, pitching uh, the idea and then we got to it uh, probably shortly after that, uh, late 2011, 2012 and, and the rest is history. Describe the work that you do for the V Foundation. Well, the V Foundation is uh, we we all about cancer awareness and research. And uh, when when the late Jim Valvano started this organization, there was very little money raised uh, for cancer and the awareness of cancer. And he wanted to make an impact before he leaves this earth. And boy, did he. Uh, we, we've raised the awareness. There's a lot of other great organizations that's trying to find a cure for cancer. It, and the V Foundation is one of many. But because of ESPN, we got a lot more notoriety, obviously. And, uh, and, and just the way uh, our team and the way Jim Valvano is such an integral part of that and his personality, it really gave the, the organization uh, a big jump start. You know, all of us are going to be affected by cancer in some way, mm-hmm. uh, or whether a friend or family member or somebody's going to be affected by cancer. So uh, I'm just excited to be a part of that. I mean, I didn't ask to be on the board. I was one of the, I'm a, I'm a founding member, the first five people that was uh, selected to be on the board. And, and Jim Valvano basically did it on his deathbed. Mm. I'm the only, I'm the only player that's on the board. I'm the only player that was a pallbearer at Jim's funeral. And so uh, my relationship with, with Coach Valvano speaks for itself. So this, for me, is not uh, work on the board. This is a calling. Uh, this man and his family asked me to be a part of something to, uh, to really help people find this cure for cancer and, and, and make people aware that... Uh, now it's not a death sentence, and people are are uh, thriving and surviving through the work of the V Foundation and many other organizations 
around the country. What did Coach Valvano mean to your life and career? What he taught me was that you got to enjoy your life. You, you, you got to enjoy people and be passionate about what you do. It's really as simple as that. I never seen him down one time in his life. Wow. He's had some tra- traumatic moments, obviously going through cancer, mm-hmm. but man's personality and his will uh, to live and to survive was, was, was at another level. And the, the impact that he had on people was they can meet him for one day, 30 minutes, five minutes. I get stories all the time about he stopped and, uh, uh, and hung out with the, the students and had pizza with him or a young lady that didn't even know him. He stopped at a grocery store. I mean, I've heard many stories because he just loved people and he loved his life. And uh, I think I take that from him every day. He, you can control your attitude. You know, if you read something positive before you go to bed at night and you wake up in the morning and you say, you know what, if I'm going to lift myself up, let me lift somebody else up. I can control being positive about life every day I wake up. You have control of that. You have to decide you're going to be positive. Somebody told me uh, once, it said a light, a candle doesn't lose its light even when it lights other candles. And I always remembered that. Yeah, but there's people that will blow your candle out. You just got to make sure you get some matches and light it up again. And light it up again. Okay. That's right. (laughs) You got to watch the people that want to blow your light out. (laughs) And and you got to say, that's all. You can blow it out, but I got plenty more matches right here to keep lighting it up. I'm going to bring it right on back. That's right. Uh, Your foundation's motto is dream, believe, work, now finish. What does that mean? Yeah, that means that all of us, we, we, we dream and we have wonderful ideas. We have, you know, I always thought a vision is a dream with a plan. All things are possible because you can see when people put their minds together, they can achieve anything. So I want people to continue to dream. And then and, and while you're doing the process, you have to continue to believe in what you're doing and stay the course. Gotcha. And then you must continue the work through all the ups and downs because it's, it's sometimes it, it's just not going to happen fast enough. Mm. And then at the end of the day, if you really want it, you want to stay with it, you got to finish. And that's what, uh, that's the message I want to get across and raise, raising money to help kids in college who've gotten to that point that their dream was to go to college and get a great education. And some circumstances happen where they struggle a little bit and I want to help some of those kids finish college. And I think that uh, you're talking about passion. A lot of these kids from all these schools, they don't even know who Derek Wittenberg is because they're not, they're not athletes. And uh, they, they found out they're getting this scholarship from the Derek Wittenberg Foundation. And I'm telling you, when they walk across that stage and they tell their stories, it, is, it, it warms my heart. So it's something that I enjoy. You know, I... It, the way you allocate a day, whatever you're doing during the day from 8 to 5 o'clock is the time that you do your day job. Well, I mostly outwork people is from 5 to 12 o'clock in the evening. Okay. Because that's when people stop working, right? Mm. I'm, I'm at an event. I'm at a dinner. Uh, I'm talking to people. So from 5 to 12 p.m., 
I outwork 10% of the people in the country because the 90% of the people in the country stop working after five. Yes, they do. Or after four. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah, definitely after four. Because they at the house by five. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, if someone wants to contribute to the Derek Wittenberg Foundation, how do they get in touch with you? Uh, the website is vdwfoundation.org. Uh, you can look up DerekWittenberg.com. I'm working on my website right now, but it, it usually will come up. And uh, we usually, before the pandemic, we had several events that we've had to fundraise, what have you. And uh, But you can go to thevfoundation.org and get on the information and sign up. We help in uh, colleges in the state of North Carolina right now. We're trying to get to every university system, schools, plus the loot, plus the... Uh, uh, the schools right here in that area. So, so far it's been Shaw and Wilmington and St. Aug and NC State and Meredith, uh, Peace University. Uh, we want to just continue to add schools and it's fun. We have, we have fun at our events and uh, we helping a lot of great kids uh, get to the finish line. Now, what advice do you have for coaches who want to transition into administration? Do it as fast as you can. Uh, because <laughs> I, I didn't realize that uh, how much fun it can be if you uh, if you coach, you're in the right role. And uh, for me, having the opportunity to be in fundraising, connecting with people, mentoring kids, uh, connecting with coaches, I'm a different kind of administrator because the coaches know I've been a coach. Mm. Well, I have a connection there. The players know that I play and I have a connection there. So I can offer them real experiences about what it what it's like to be a coach during the good times and the bad times. And as a player, especially in my alma mater, I've walked, I walked these halls, I've walked these bricks. Uh, I experienced this. I, I can tell them real life experiences uh, that that's helped my life on this campus and in college because I've uh, coached and worked at 11 other different colleges. So uh, I have some unique experiences that and coaches do have some unique experiences that most administrators, they've been administrator. I don't know if a lot of them have, have played the game or coached the game. Got it. I'm going to give you the start of some sentences and I need you to finish them for me. Okay. I know I've had a good day when. That I've empowered somebody to, to help them in their journey. If I had a conversation with my younger self, I would prepare him for. I will prepare him for the tough times of life. To have longevity in this industry, you need? To be the ability to connect with people. The person who influenced me the most was? My parents. And when I retire, I want to be remembered for? Never retiring. Never retiring. <laughs> uh, I want to be remembered for my work ethic. 
That's great. You you definitely have displayed that. You're in several halls of fame. As you said, you worked at 11 different campuses, and you're now back home at NC State. How does it feel being on campus now, knowing who Derek was when he got there in 79 and who he is now? Well, we, we, we all athletes and individuals that go to college, you go there for the opportunity to be trained and to be educated. And most leave uh, only trained and not educated enough. That doesn't mean just because you get a degree, that don't mean you become educated. Correct. And so when I, when I came here, I wanted to be a first-generation graduate that was trained and educated. And, and I can go back and look and says, am I a better person, right? Can I connect to people? Can I help people through the experience and the successes that I learned starting my journey at NC State? And that's what makes it uh, more impactful for me. To me, this is not a job for me. This is a calling. I'm passionate about it. I'm excited about it. I'm generally excited about life anyway. But to come back and to help some of these young people, to help our donors, to help our journey here at NC State, uh, I think it's a lot of fun for me. And it never gets old because it's something I'm doing something that I that I love. And, and I'm here. I'm at a place where I want to be. That's great. Well, I know that you are a man of tremendous character. You're very loyal. You've been a friend to me for over 30 years. And I know you're a friend because you weren't just there in the good times. You were always there in the bad times. And I thank you for that. And I thank you for the information that you shared with our listeners. There are lots of good information in this conversation. And I just wish you continued success. Thank you very much. I love what you all are doing. I think once the the pandemic slows down and this virus slows down, I think these conversations are just as impactful in person because sometimes they need to connect with the way you deliver these messages to these young folks because they have a great opportunity to be successful whatever they desire to choose. All they got to do is go for it. Dream, believe, work. Now Now finish. Thank you for listening to our podcast. I hope that the notes you took from our guests will help you as you plan and build your career. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. View from the big chair, examining the cost to be the boss. I'm your host, Marlon Jones, and I thank you again for listening.